Hello and welcome to A Glimpse into the Future. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos, and in this podcast series, we explore with some of the world's leading experts how new technologies and ideas can help us shape our future. In this week's episode, I talked with the co-chairs of the World Economic Forum's Council on the Future of Human Rights, Erika Kochi, co-founder of UNICEF Innovation, and Mike Posner, Jerome Kohlberg Professor of Ethics and Finance at the Stern School of Business at the New York University and director of their Center for Business and Human Rights. As we're celebrating the 17th anniversary of the Declaration of Human Rights, what are the main areas of progress that we have seen, uh, Mike, and which are the unresolved issues that we're still facing today? I think there's been tremendous progress in terms of making human rights a more mainstream issue in global politics and the way governments think about what their responsibilities are. Seventy years ago, it was a really new idea that there was a, a global set of standards. Now people understand that. And it's a it's a issue that's on the front pages of newspapers, and diplomats are engaged in this in a serious way. We've seen a lot of practical progress. The end of apartheid in South Africa, military dictatorships in Latin America largely gone. We've seen an opening up of the Eastern space, the former Soviet bloc. Um, we've, we've seen a range of other places where things have really improved. But the challenge is that people don't always get along. Uh, there are tensions, ethnic, religious, racial tensions. And we see a range of places in the world, Syria, uh, Burma with the Rohingya and other places, where there are still massive violations of human rights. So we've got to ever be vigilant about that. Erika, you, with your work in UNICEF, what are the main challenges that you still identify in this place? What, what are some of the things that you would highlight there? I mean, I think, you know, as much progress as has been made, um, there is still very, very far to go. If you take the individual rights, um, I think we are still very far from universal realization of those individual rights, whether it's the right to health or to be educated, even some of the most basic fundamental services are just not universal. I think we've been really good at getting to like the 80 percentile, 80th percentile mark. You know, for example, if you look at immunization, it used to be in the 20s, you know, in the, in the early 80s, 70s and early 80s. You know, within a decade we got it to 80%, but it hasn't really moved since then because then I think the last, you know, 20, 10, 20% is the hardest to reach. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we need new approaches to try to, to, to make headway there. So there's still quite far to go, because even though we've come so far, the last part is the hardest. So what are the, the current trends, Mike, that you see that can make us feel optimistic about overcoming <laughs> the, these challenges in the next 10 to 15 years? Well, I think a couple of trends are encouraging, but they pose risks at the same time. One is the greater uh, I express, there's more information um, about what's going on in the world. It was the case 30, 50 years ago that in, you could hide what you were doing. Uh, today, because of social media, because of communications technology, it's out there. When there's a violation, people know about it and they know about it quickly. That's empowering of people and people have also been able to better organize. Uh, again, even 40 years ago, there were whole parts of the world, Sub-Saharan Africa or Eastern Europe, where there were no human rights organizations. Today there's a human rights organization in virtually every 
country in the world, maybe North Korea accepted. But we're also seeing, because of that empowerment of people, and because there is such great communications capacity, governments are increasingly anxious about their own losing their own grip on power. So we've seen, especially in the last few years, a retrenchment. Governments are attacking human rights organizations and other civil society actors. They're trying to shut down some of the technology or control it. They're nervous that this more open, more empowered world poses threats for their, uh, their existence. You mentioned the empowerment of people, uh, the government's uh, adaptation or behavior towards that. What's the role of the private sector in this whole discussion around human rights? Well, what's interesting is that when the human rights, we mentioned the Universal Declaration, when the Universal Declaration and treaties were drafted and debated, it was a debate among states. There was really a sense that this was now a collective responsibility of governments to protect their own people, and if they didn't do it, the global community was going to come in and say, you have to do better. There really was very little discussion of the private sector, but the world has changed dramatically. And in an era of now globalization for the last 25 or 30 years, you see global companies getting bigger and more powerful. At the same time, states are getting weaker in many instances. And so you have what I call a governance gap between weak states, powerful global corporate actors, and inevitably people say, okay, if the state's not going to do it, then we have to turn to the private sector to take greater responsibility. Companies didn't sign up for this, but they're now part of the discussion. And I think we're in an early stage of trying to figure out what the rules of the road are for these big global companies that are operating in a messy, chaotic sometimes chaotic world. Have we already seen uh, companies <coughs> being actively involved in some projects, some public-private collaboration around human rights initiatives, or is it still in the discussion stage? I would say we're still at an early stage. It's still embryonic, but we are seeing some coming together of companies. Uh, in the 1990s, when there was a sweatshop movement in the United States, Europe, and elsewhere, global apparel companies came together with NGOs, with uh, with universities and created a common space called the Fair Labor Association. We saw it in the mining industry, uh, something called the Voluntary Principles for Security and Human Rights, oil mining companies coming together with governments and NGOs to try to figure that out. <clears throat> so we're seeing a number of companies individually saying we have a responsibility to act well. We have our own internal codes of conduct, whatever, but we're also beginning to see in certain industries, industry competitors saying, we're not going to compete on human rights, we're going to figure out how to work together. And that's to me where we really begin to get progress. Another example that the World Economic Forum has been in very involved in helping to catalyze is uh, called the Battery Alliance, uh, Global Battery Alliance, and it deals with the very real problem in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, where one of the key elements of producing batteries, cobalt, is being basically mined by children. Uh, something like 40,000 children are in those artisanal mines. There hasn't been a really effective way of uh, responding to that. And so companies, development agencies, NGOs have come together in the last couple of years to begin to figure out what do you do about that. It's an example of what I'm describing, an industry approach with that's multi-stakeholder. Multi Very interesting. I also think that um, increasingly the private sector companies are, are the ones who are 
enabling people to access their rights more and more. So, for example, if you look at um, you know social networks, and you know now the right to, to internet and the right to information, and you know to uh, to congregate, they are so critical for people to act, access their rights. <laughs> so the responsibilities that they have are also now increased vis-a-vis -vis people's rights. And I think we're at the beginning of discovering what that's going to look like for for a lot of companies. Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> the other thing I think companies can do in our terrific enablers of is. Um, making more information available. Um, there's something called Parsons' Law, which says that that which is measured improves, and that which is measured and is transparent uh, improves exponentially. Uh, technology companies are helping activists and others who are engaged in this space collect information efficiently, and that information is going to help drive the debate about human rights. And as we, you mentioned technology and data and information, as we're heading to, towards the fourth industrial revolution. Erika, uh, you're working a lot with uh, innovation. What are the new technologies that are also promising to shape the space? Uh, and what are some of the opportunities of these new technologies are offering to the world of human rights? Um, and one of the technologies that I'm most excited about, but also most worried about, is artificial intelligence, and specifically machine learning. Mm -hmm. I think that machine learning will enable us to create tremendous efficiencies in the way that governments operate, uh, the way we deliver public services, um, which will mean that, you know, a very small pot of money can hopefully go a lot further in helping people realize their rights. However, I'm also very concerned about it because as it moves into all parts of our, our, our life and our world and the way we access those rights, whether it's access to healthcare, access to employment, access to education, or even credit and lending, if we don't make sure that the data we're using is representative to train these things, it will start excluding people whose data is not present or whose voices are not sort of heard within algorithm design. So if you think about, uh, for example, uh, let's take a, um, someone who's, uh, who's trying to access a loan in, uh, in Nairobi. If they are a, someone who's rural and we're using um, social network data to see if you're actually credit worthy, like how many times you talk to your friends, what kind of network do you have, how responsive are you, and they're not connected, as their data won't be recorded, and therefore the algorithm will learn over time that they are probably less credit worthy because they don't have as much data about them. So what do we do about that? How can we fix this before it becomes a bigger problem that the problem is trying to solve? I think there's you know, four things that we can do. I think each industry that's applying machine learning applications need to, needs to determine what does fairness look like um, and in, in terms of how we build our algorithm. And let's also think about, well, when this does go wrong, because you know, if it does go off track somehow, who, who will it go wrong for? And what should we do about it? And can we, can we allow some access to redress? So defining fair, including people who, um, whose lives they're affecting. So if you're designing an algorithm for the healthcare sector, you should probably include healthcare professionals. And then really mapping out what potential unintended consequences could this have? And then if this does happen, how can we fix it? I would say that is a one example or one important example of the fact that new technologies are 
a force multiplier. Whatever you've always done, you now can do exponentially faster, bigger, bolder. And it requires, I think, greater attention in terms of how technology industries are governed. And it requires thinking beyond just, in the first instance, what's the business case? How are companies making money? There have to be some countervailing discussions about what are some of the limits on what the technology can do. Again, let's take advantage of its strength and its utility, but let's be mindful of the unintended consequences that Eric is talking about. So if you had one message to deliver to the decision makers <coughs> here in Davos, uh, what would that be? I would say one of the things that's great about Davos is that you have the leaders of the biggest global companies coming, and there's a lot of conversation about their role in the world broadly, charity, public-private partnerships, new innovations, etc. I think the one thing that needs to get more attention is a real look at how do companies make money and how do they make money in a way that takes human rights as a central element of what their business model, their business plan needs to be. Erica? Yeah, just to build on what Mike said, I think um, even though it's difficult to bring two cultures together and two different groups together, I think working with civil society, working with people who, who, whose job it is to deliver people's rights or help people realize their rights is going to be crucial and we're, it may be difficult, but we want to work with you. Perfect. And I hope and I'm sure they want to work with you as well. Uh, thank you very much for your time. That was Erika Kochi and Mike Posner, co-chairs of the Global Future Council on Human Rights. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos, and that was all from this week's episode of A Glimpse into the Future.